0: That's a sensational catch, absolutely brilliant from Hooper Was hit back firmly by Maiello Could fly all the way for a maximum It's going to soar into the sky That's the six they needed, that's 50 for Forbrush What a knock that is from him Outstanding striking, and that six brings Guernsey back into the Could be a catch, what a catch One-handed grab, and that's Josh Butler the captain Oh my
1: days, we have been treated to some catches in this tournament Welcome to Guernsey Cricket's podcast, I'm Ben Furbrush, Cricket Development Manager and on this podcast we're going to be chatting to players old and new, coaches, administrators and hopefully a few other cricketing keen beans along the way. On today's pod, I'm catching up with a man who has scored over 11,000 first class runs and was the ex-Guernsey Cricket coach, Mr Nick Poffus. Hi Nick, welcome to the pod. How have you found the lockdown period, what's it consisted of for yourself? It's pretty much
0: been a load of gymming. Uh, getting jobs done at home, which have been, uh, I've been procrastinating on for probably six years, and um, trying to stay in contact with the Middlesex lads. Um, they're obviously quite far removed, um, and we don't actually appreciate, you know, living down in Southampton where I'm fortunate to have space. Uh, you don't really appreciate that in London they don't have that space, so there are anxieties and stresses around being in a flat as opposed to actually having some space. But, um, yeah, spending a load of time with um, with Manny, which has been awesome because uh, I don't get to see him a lot when I'm working and when I'm travelling. Uh, but having him down here, it's been uh, been awesome.
1: So, yeah, just to pick up on that, Manny's actually your little boy. Hopefully he doesn't make the same mistake as, as yourself and
0: others and choose Southampton over Portsmouth. Well... Uh, one of his little mates is a Portsmouth fan, but he's been banned from uttering those words or being <laughs> Portsmouth as a team in this household, especially since his mother is a Southampton staunch Southampton. <laughs> You're touching it
1: there, but how does Middlesex training look like at the moment?
0: Yeah, so it's it's Zoom sessions and then each player's got their um, their own programme. So they go off and do their own bits at the moment. But um, yeah, the, the responsibility lies with them. Okay, nice. If we go... Way back to
1: the start, born and raised in South Africa. Can you give us an outline of how that was? To me, I've always sort of seen South Africans are quite thick-skinned, you know, quite tough. I don't know if that's something to do with the, the upbringing
0: or, you know, what um, you differently to, to England. Yeah. Look, I, I was I had a bit of a different upbringing from, um, from most South Africans um, in that we were a very poor family um, of immigrants. Uh, my grandparents... On my mom's side, came down from Egypt. My mom was born in Egypt, um, in Alexandria. Um, and the, the war was on at the time. So they came down to South Africa. Um, and to the, to the day they passed away, in their late 90s, they still couldn't speak English. So they, they, were, um, they were very poor. Um, and my dad was sent down from the Congo. He was born in the Congo um, with his brother. They were sent down to go to school at a, at a really young age. Five six years of age, um, and my grandparents took my aunt, their sister, back to Greece. So they, they were very very poor. Um, so we grew up in a house with uh, multiple families, um, and and going to school, you know, you know, walks to school were pretty daunting because you're you're a little kid um, and you wouldn't have that much stuff with you for for fear of being robbed or being mugged the area we lived wasn't a very um, smart area. So, so yeah, you learn to toughen up when when you were young. And my dad uh, worked very, very hard um, and was able to give us everything we needed. And then um, when it got to, to going to school itself, I just got very lucky because we only applied at um, some very poor schools, thinking we could only get into them. Um, and they all rejected us, myself and my brother. And then um, King Edward School accepted us. And that was... I suppose, the biggest luck of my life, really, because it's it's a school that has produced the most um, international cricketers in history um, based on the amount of time that it's been in existence. And, you know, it's been in existence for 130-odd years. So, yeah, to land up there was, was very, very fortunate. And I suppose, you know, my mum played tennis and my dad played semi-pro football and basketball. How I have no idea because he used to fit under my armpit, but um, I, you know we we always had sort of sporty jeans, I suppose. But you know, Kez, King Edward was um, where sport sort of picked up, um, and we we grew in confidence because you know mixing with people from wealthier families when you're a, when you're a young kid and not really having any kit. Um, you know, you're always using the stuff out of the team kit bag that's provided. You know, you do feel a little bit inferior, but I suppose our skills and our ability gave us confidence. Um, and, and young kids as they are, they tend to gravitate towards the better kids. So yeah, th- that, was, that was sort of the early years. Um, and then when I was about 15, I had to make a decision between tennis and cricket as to which one I wanted to pursue. And I opted to play with my mates. You know, tennis seemed a little bit lonely and you were on your own. Some may argue a pretty poor decision at that age. Uh, but, you know, I certainly don't regret it. Um, and and that's that's where we, we sort of started going towards cricket. But, at, you know, in South Africa, you talk about people being tough. I, I suppose you're tough because of the competition. You know, everyone, when I say wants to win, not wants to win in a detrimental way, but everyone wants to be better than other people. So the, the competition's tough. Yeah. Know, and, when I, went, when I um, moved from junior school to senior school, our under-13A team was made up purely of kids that made the Transvaal junior teams. You know? So to, to get into that team, you had to be a pretty good cricketer. And there were even some kids that made some of the Transvaal teams. Um, Transvaal at the time, obviously, Gauteng. Now, you know, we're playing in the B team. So it was, it was a very strong... Um, and competitive environments and and you had to make do. But my dad always drove into me. You know, we we I was at a school where in my team you had Graham Pollock's son and you had Ali Baker's nephew who was my roommate and my best mate um over the years. And you know, if I got fifty or sixty, my dad being a Greek dad used to say, Hey don't forget where you come from. Fifty or sixty gets you nothing. They can get twenty and get noticed. Yeah. So so he always used to used to drive me and um You know, it was beneficial for me because I gravitated towards that because I always wanted to prove people wrong. Um, My brother on the flip side didn't really like that, so he sort of fell by the wayside a little bit. Um, Certainly he had a lot more, in inverted commas, talent, it's a horrible word, but more ability than I did. Um, I just worked much harder. Um, And, you know, the, the... The whole Greek kid from the wrong side of the tracks, you know, trying to prove the pedigree people wrong has always really driven me. So I suppose that's sort of to the end of school, really. But by the time I got to 16 years of age, you know, I'd I'd done enough to get noticed. And then, you know, you're you're in the environment, you're in the professional environments and, and you're being noticed. And then it's just how badly you want it. Yes. Yeah, so
1: so you, you said there you started out with Transvaal. How how was that? We you, you know you had to obviously work hard to get there. Obviously there'd be quite a for you being wicket keeper. There's going to be quite a few people going
0: for that one spot, uh, which must be equally as hard as well. Well, funny enough, uh, when I was a kid, up until the age of 15, 16, I was a leg spinning a fat leg spinning slogger. So that's how I made Transvaal schools. You know, as a leg spinner who batted at six, um it, we couldn't afford, you know, the latest gear and all the rest. So my stuff was always bought years ahead. So I had a uh Ian Botham attack, which was way too big for me and way too heavy. Way too heavy, that's yeah. One of the one of the worst things as coaching is
1: when you get someone with a yeah. heavy bat, which I think every kid's bat in our system's heavier than mine. So Well,
0: the, the trouble. The trouble was we couldn't afford it anymore, so my dad used to plan for anything that would last five years. So, you know, I just used to try and hit the ball as far as I could, bowl some leg spin, but I was never a keeper. I suppose we can get to the story about how I became a keeper a little bit later. But um, I, I moved from being a leg spinner to being a seamer. So I was an all-rounder, um, and then when I when I was under fifteen, you generally move. In South Africa, from under 15, you go into an open category and then it's a free-for-all. So you have three years of playing open age group cricket um, and you might start in the thirds or fourths and then work your way up um, as a younger kid. But we had, a, we had a school teacher who, I suppose, noticed something in me um, and just took me straight from under 15s and moved me into the second team Um, and I was I was fortunate enough to be successful at that level and then the very next year he said well why don't you try opening the batting rather than batting in the middle order Uh, because there wasn't an opening batter in the first team so I would have been out of my age group there and we tried it and actually the first game I played I got 80 odd not out against my dad's old school which was always a a pleasure to go home to Um, and from there, it was sort of history, you know. I became an opening batter who bowled once. Once I moved from there into the the setup. Look, in, in South Africa, it's different because I think there's there's some sort of academy system now. But in South Africa, you you go from school to club cricket to professional cricket. That's it's a really simple pathway. Right. Uh, but but it's a it's a very tough pathway. And we were only we were only talking the other day that you know we would go. Monday was probably the only non-cricketing day, but Tuesday would be uh, school cricket up until 4 or 4.30. And then my granddad would pick us up from there, myself and and Adam, my best mate, and take us down to the club, which was our old boys club, the old Guardian Society, um, which is also steeped in history. And we'd get there and it's probably just starting to, the sun's just starting to go down. You're a young kid who's come down to nets. So you bat at the end. And they asked us early, like, do you prefer which nets to go into? But we were like, no, because you've got bravado. So you were like, no, we don't mind. So you'd go into the Premier League nets where you've got provincial fast bowlers and guys who are much older than you and you're 15 years of age. And in those years, there was no such thing as arm guards and chess guards. I mean, I've never worn an arm guard or a chess guard. Um, and it, it was just earpieces, no grills. Yeah. <laughs> and it's in the dark and they, they don't care how old you are. It's a sink or swim environment. Yeah. So, yeah. so you may do, but you certainly learn very quickly what you could and couldn't do and what you needed to be able to do. So you then get together and you throw balls at each other's heads until you manage to, to sort that problem out.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, from from there as well, you, um, excuse the pronunciation, but you progressed to galton Was that there where you became a wicketkeeper? Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, Adam and I, both, um, we play Premier League cricket well out of our years, but as the, as the hierarchy works, you get looked after. Um, you know, I, I don't know what you want to what you want to call it, but abuse uh, or what do they call it now when you swear at each other on a cricket field? Uh, but yeah, I don't, I, I, don't, I think they well they played the they frame, time
1: series. It's, it's not banter. You know, you're overstepping the mark, which. Well, that's I'm not
0: that's sure. That's I think I think it's an Aussie thing. It, it sort of makes them feel brave. Um, so I'm, I'm not quite sure what it is. But I left the playground when I was 15. So someone calling me names and that sort of um, just seems a little bit immature, unless you unless you're very smart about it. And and you know I was fortunate enough to play with Shane Warne, who was who was very very smart about the way he spoke to people. There wasn't an effing and blinding all the time. But anyway, you, we played club cricket from a really young age. Um, and we both got into the Kauteng system, you know, into school. So I, I got a contract when I still had a year of school left um, and Adam got a contract probably two years after that. Um, so so we were involved in that system. Um, there was no academy or anything like that. It was just straight from club cricket, um, straight into that environment. Um, and the year they they... They experimented with an under 23 year. They got rid of um, second team cricket or B section cricket for a year. Right. So you were allowed to play two over the age of 23, um, but the rest were, were 23 and under. So we, we played in that age group for, for a year. And then the, the following year, we had a, an A's versus B's practice match. It was a night game under lights. And the two wicket keepers, the A and B wicket keeper, um, one was a lawyer for the Oppenheimers, and the other one was an accountant. So they um, they couldn't get to the start of play. Eddie Barlow was our coach at the time, and Kevin McKenzie, Neil McKenzie's dad, was our um, convener of selectors. And because I'd always feel that it slipped, they said, oh, can you just get some gloves on in that and just keep at the beginning? I mean, you think about that in this day and age, there's no way you'd stick gloves on an opening batter for fear of breaking his fingers. But in South Africa, it's like you just get on with it. So I kept... in in that game and um, Kevin McKenzie it was just when when keepers were starting to have to bat right yeah but those two keepers and another keeper who was three years older than me who had played SA Schools Cricket and was sort of a prodigy at the time and those three didn't really bat right so Kevin McKenzie just came up to me afterwards and just said look I think you uh, need to throw away those bowling boots um, and and start start keeping so that, that so if it was a complete fluke that that I started keeping. So I started keeping probably when I was eighteen or nineteen. Yeah, which is which is obviously exceptionally late. With that, I mean you're pretty tall
1: for a keeper as well. Most keepers use you're your short guy in the team, um, but yeah, I mean, you're well over six foot. So that, does that have problems at all or on your back on your
0: knees? No, not really. Um, I've always obviously stayed fit. Um, you know, my, my take on the whole thing was, you know, short sure, keeper can't get taller, but I can get more agile. So um, I, I worked really hard on my agility. I trained a lot with um, squash players and boxers. Uh, our trainer at the time at Gauteng Cricket, Jeff Lunsky, who's an absolute guru, uh, used to train a lot of the top squash players. So I always used to ask to go to their sessions and muck in in their sessions. Uh, none of the skill work obviously, but all the agility and strength and conditioning work. So I did all my um, my cricket work and then uh, did extra work with them. And then he had quite a lot of the boxers coming in as well and training with him. So then I would muck in and go and, um, go and do boxing sessions as well.
1: So, and uh, Langer did as well, didn't he? Justin Langer used to do the boxing sessions. He said he used to make a yeah. grip on his feet when he was batting. He said, obviously, Balls traveling past your nose most of the time is an opening
0: batter. Um you've got to be fairly agile. So very much so. So the boxing, you're obviously trying to get things to um to marry up with your skill. So the boxing, as as Langa as you mentioned there, um married up with the batting and the squash stuff married up with the um with the wicket keeping. Nice, yeah. And then you obviously
1: made an ODI appearance, uh, or a couple of ODI appearances at the time, obviously. <laughs> Mark Boucher probably acted as a bit of a barrier for you in, in, in terms of representing South Africa. How was that getting you know, selected for your, your country?
0: Uh, to be honest, it was a bit of an anticlimax. It wasn't a, you know, all my life I trained to represent my country, but um, I worked out pretty quickly that my face didn't fit. You know, where, where I started out as, you know, a Greek kid from the wrong side of the, uh, the tracks, you know, it's, um, it sort of follows you, follows you up a little bit. Um you know, the environment at the time was a highly sort of military, very, very religious environment. You know, Peter Pollock is is a vicar, you know, Sean, John T., Hudson, Hunsey, you know, a whole lot of them very, very religious guys. And totally nothing against that. You know, everyone's uh, makes their own choices. But um, you know, a little kid with uh, tattoos, earrings, bleached blonde hair, you know, at the time enjoyed a night out uh times, times have changed since then, um, other than the tattoos. But, um, yeah, the face sort of didn't fit. Um, I was a pretty boisterous kid, very, very competitive. Um, but as I said, it's, it was the way I had to sort of find my feet and um, compete with these blokes who had been pedigreed from a young age. So, yeah, it, it was. I mean, South Africa, up until the time that someone decided that Boucher was going to be the next in, Uh, never took two wicket keepers on tour. Um, There was a lot of press about it. Uh, The press also put a lot of pressure on selectors um, to pick me as a batter because I was out batting the batters. Um, Peter Pollock just kept coming back and saying, no, he's a wicket keeper batter. So we can only pick him as such. Um, The press then went back at him and said, well, if he's your best batter and he keeps, then surely he makes your team. Um, And he was very, very political around it. Um, You know, he, he just... Dodged around it. So I, I worked out pretty quick that that wasn't going to happen. So I then, um, so when I say it was an anti climax, you know, he, he cut his finger on that, uh, on the on cutter, and I flew back from the West Indies in order to play those few, um, in which I did pretty well. And then I had to find out via the newspapers that um, I'd been left out. No one made a phone call or, or actually let me know. But, but going into that debut, I'd I'd given up on South African cricket, I'd had enough. So I went and um, and lived with a mate of mine in Newport Beach in the US and went and played baseball at a college in Costa Mesa. So I I was over there playing baseball. Um, you know, I'd I'd always functioned at around eighty-two, eighty-three kilos. Um, but for baseball I got myself up to a hundred plus. Right. So I was big. Um, and then Dale Benkenstein rang me and said, uh, we've got a tour to the West Indies, an A tour. Um, are you available? And I said, no, I'm, I'm standing up. Yeah, I'm done with that. And he said, well, you, you've given... At the time, I'd played six or seven years of A-side cricket. He um, said, look, you've had sort of six or seven years. Why don't you just treat it as a holiday on the, on the uh, at the time, UCB United Cricket Board? So I thought, yeah, why not you know, go to the West Indies on holiday? yeah think uh, places yeah so so I went across there and that 's when I got called across, so I trained all my life to function at eighty two kilos and when I made my debut I was a hundred plus right and, and obviously that that was sort of
1: mostly well I guess you, you 're going to tell me, but was that the reason you sort of left South Africa to to join
0: Hampshire in two thousand and two yeah I, I needed I needed something to get me out of bed in the morning the um, you know i'd done long enough with I've done 10 years in South Africa and you know going nowhere and I'm, I'm a very driven individual I, I need to know where I'm going and you know just to wake up and play provincial cricket day in day out look you can always try and achieve things and win trophies but you know you, you want to know a little bit more about yourself so a, a guy called Sven Kunig was playing for us at the time and um, he had an Italian mum. so he said he's going across to play County Cricket so I said well how have you managed that so when he told me I was like oh well, there we go. With my Greek passport, we I got a hold of my agent, and um, who is who is English, who then um, got us in here. But the the ECB tried to block it, um, so we then said, "Well, okay, we'll take it to Supreme Court because there's a, there's a restraint of trade here, and um, you know, being in the European Union, you can't stop me working." So yeah. they obviously figured that out. The, the I suppose the, the the communication to them was, "You might as well let him in." the hush because if this goes to the supreme court and goes to the newspapers then you're literally going to open the floodgates for them to come in yeah so thank goodness they bought that but people were going to find out anyway so yeah that, that's the way i got across a lot of people think i got across on a coal pack i didn't get across on coal pack i got across on a uh, greek passport european union and and that followed nine
1: years eight years at uh, uh- but yeah, I think I think it was yeah nine years. Fairly successful career with Hampshire, you know, averaging forty odd with a bat. That's, I mean, that's pretty decent uh, in first class cricket. Yeah. Well,
0: nowadays, nowadays they they tell us that batters are, are elite in county cricket. Now that I've been coaching in county cricket, you know, some some of your top batters that people talk about average, you know, mid thirties. Now it's very hard to understand how they consider top batters because surely surely the basis of a good batter is to average. 40 plus. So, so yes, I'm, I'm proud of that record. Um, you know, for, for Hampshire, I obviously averaged a lot more, sort of more towards the mid-40s because when I came across, it, I was probably mid-30s from South Africa. You know, the parameters for a good batter in county cricket or an elite batter should be 40 plus. You know, and a lot of people have spoken about, I mean, there's a particular a batter who's left middle six this year to go to Yorkshire, who's, you know, played Test cricket, played Ashes cricket and 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 it's looked at as an elite batter, you know, the average is 37. When you're physically playing, people put people on a pedestal um, without looking at numbers, and numbers on could be all an end all, but numbers over a period of time will paint you a pretty good picture.
1: Really interesting. Um, following on from that, uh, obviously you've you got into coaching. Bowling! Beautiful bit of bowling from William Pete Field. The stump comes crashing out the ground, and that's a big wicket here. In Guernsey versus Denmark at the KG5. That's the first wicket. Letizia is the one who strikes. He gives it a big celebration. He writes it up on a book. He notes it down and sends him off. Can add Manfred Singh to that list. That's the breakthrough Letitia needed. That's the breakthrough Guernsey needed. And that's the breakthrough the Mark Lanner to my left wants a big smile in his face. And that's a better shot there. Stokes straight up the mark. Rolls for four. What a wonderful cut there. So, obviously, following that playing career, you then moved into coaching, Uh, firstly with ourselves in Guernsey, which we were very fortunate to have. How did you find that? Was it tough going from the professional background, uh, training every day, you know, really intense, into the amateur
0: game? Yeah, I mean, I I took a year out of, you know, I joined um, Guernsey Cricket in 2013. um, And let it be said, you know, and I say it often, that I'm hugely indebted to, to Guernsey cricket, um, you know, specifically Mark Latter and David Nisbaumer for, for giving me the opportunity because, you know, I had no pedigree. I had no background in coaching. Um, I, t- I took a year out. I had some um, property projects that I wanted to complete. Um, but more than anything, I didn't want to go transition from playing into coaching for the sake of it. I wanted to do it because I wanted to do it and had a passion for doing it. And certainly through the middle of 2012, after digging holes and, you know, carrying bricks and, and, you know, doing the laboring work, even though they were my properties, I wanted to do that stuff just to know. I, I certainly wanted to coach. You know, I, I missed it and I wanted to get back into it. I had done a lot of it in my in my last couple of years at, at Hampshire Pickett too, 2, um, you know, with guys like Liam Dawson and James Vince and, you know, Chris Wood. Danny Briggs, you know, that sort of age group, I did a, a lot of mentoring and, and uh, coaching work with them um, and enjoyed doing that. And then I, then I applied for the Guernsey cricket role and I was number one surprised I got it, but um, excited and holy, yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't anticipate what, what was in store because I, I came across with very much a player's mentality um, and a mentality of, well, you just got to work hard. And if you don't work hard, then you're going to, then you're going to struggle. And initially, I found it very frustrating. You know, people, players opting to do other things rather than what I perceived to be the things that needed doing. You know, as, as we know, um, and as you'll as experience in the office, You know, a sunny Saturday is never good for club cricket because uh, guys are very, very productive at coming up with some very, very good excuses as to why they can't play on a Friday night when you're trying to put teams out for a Saturday. That was,
1: was Kobo once selected a team and uh, one of the players actually said, um, he was a fringe player, admittedly, but he did say, can I let you know on Fridays? If it's nice, I'll probably get a home, which is a neighbouring
0: island off Guernsey, for those who don't know. so. at least he was honest (laughs) 99% of the excuses are, are not very honest but um yeah it was an unbelievable experience you know running a whole program and my dad bless him always used to say to me if you want to know how anything works make sure you get to the rock face and I did say and I did make a decision within myself that I didn't want to go from from playing professionally to coaching straight professionally I wanted to find out how the whole system worked and um that's why I applied at Guernsey because the big draw card was not just working with the top guys but actually trying to put a whole system in place and working through the system from the age groups, women's cricket, you know, the whole whack. So that for me was an unbelievable experience for for when I left. But certainly um, Guernsey mellowed me out a lot. Uh, I learned that um, there, there, are, there are better ways to do things other than just bang your head against a brick wall. You know, it was... Some of the most enjoyable coaching I've done, you know, we pushed guys to limits that they probably didn't anticipate they could go to. We've left guys there. I mean, um, I remember one of the first coaching sessions and Matt, this kid was sitting in the back of the indoor center on a bench um, with his hoodie up. Um, so I like asked some of the lads who it is. They said, Oh, that's Matt Brevin. And you know, he's, this, this tubby little bloke who sits at the back. So I went over and introduced myself. He had a big scar down the side of his face. I was like, oh, what happened, mate? Oh, i have just been a little bit gobby on the night and, um, some guy just glassed me down the side of my face. I was like, okay, so that's what we're going to deal with here. Like that was, that wasn't foreign to me because of my upbringing. You know, I had cousins who were drug dealers and bouncers and all the rest. So that wasn't foreign, but I didn't anticipate coming to an affluent island and, and having to deal with that. but, but yeah, you, you know, Brevs now loves his running and, he, and he's a fit guy. And you know, if it if it wasn't just it wasn't just the cricket, but it was more the, the lifestyle stuff and the, and the people we left. You know, it's it's a place that's very very special, and it's a place that um, I'll always return to and do whatever I can.
1: Obviously, you came back over last last winter for the awards dinner, uh, and also did a, a coaching session with some of the juniors as well, which which was great, um, which obviously Gerns are very grateful for. During your time, actually, you reasonably su- successful. Got to the semi-finals, the, the Division 1 T20 in 2013 in Sussex, that one was. Uh, I'd like to say, you, did, you didn't actually select me for that. I remember that one. remember the conversation. Um, and then... I told you to stop blocking it. It was a T20 competition. <laughs> that was before you changed my grip, before I had to wipe out the stumps about 100 times in one session, uh, which, which we actually still laugh about today with Ollie Newey, who always comes up when he says, I remember that session. He said, your stumps spent most of the time on the floor because you kept on smashing him over. You just couldn't do it. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that was, that was, that was good fun. Uh, we finished second in the World Cricket League, Division 6 in Essex, which actually we later won because Suriname had uh, fielded some inedible players. And then we finished fourth in Division 1 T20 finals uh, in Jersey. Um, so do, do you look back at those times? as uh, You forgot one thing. You forgot one thing. And we won the inter insular. We won the at 2015. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, we. Do you look back at your times thinking we should have achieved, or we overachieved, or do you still feel maybe we underachieved during that time?
0: Look for, for the ability of um, the players in that group. Um, I'm always going to set high standards, but I, I think we we probably underachieved. Uh, I think if we probably had that group for a little bit longer uh, and bled in some some younger cricketers some good cricketers that that are now sort of playing in that in that group uh i think we could have achieved some some really really good things and i think you still can uh you know the the, the quality of the cricketer in guernsey is of a very very high level it's it's the peripheral stuff that probably needs to be a little bit better you know i think i think it's at amateur level uh fielding and fitness are the things that differentiate two teams, especially for the fact that you're going to play against a lot of Asian cricketers who specifically concentrate on batting and bowling. So you can always outfield them and you can be fitter than them, especially in tournament play. What we did notice is that over a week of cricket day in, day out, those teams definitely tailed off. And that's the back end of the tournament, which is the most important time. So if if you can trend up towards the back end of a tournament and set yourself up after the first couple of days, you can be very successful in those tournaments. But having said that, that interinsular win at Port Swath was probably the best game of cricket I saw us play as a group. Uh, but we've certainly got those games of cricket in us uh, on a more consistent basis. If the the one percenters are done, and the one percenters aren't just about Performance. They're about whether a group of guys has respect for each other. Um, they're about whether people can go and do something tough when it's easier to do something a lot more pleasurable. You know, we trained as a group, as a core group, at six o'clock in the morning because people had work to do. Um, and it's no surprise that when there were tough moments in games of cricket, that we came through those. But if if we're going to shirk those things that are a little bit harder to do and a little bit more uncomfortable to do, then um, certainly it'll manifest in results.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. So it's actually a shame with, with everything that's going on because, we, I mean, you touched on Brebs before. He's actually one of the guys that's, you know, been training as hard as anyone through the winter, uh, two, three times a week at six o'clock in the morning. He's in nets, bowling, uh, even doing some batting, um, all his fitness and everything. So it is a massive shame that you know, this this sort of summer, you're sort of expecting quite big things, I think, um, which is kind of a, a, a bit of a shame that we potentially might not have much cricket, which we don't know what's happening with our tournaments at the moment. But yeah, it was, it's definitely something which uh, we seem to have got that sort of buzz back and something which, which is where you sort of left us. Um, following on from Guernsey, you went on to uh, take up the role of Leicestershire Academy Director. Taking on, um, I think, Will for Zachary, Matt Stokes and Tom Nightingale, you, you took them under your wing from Guernsey and took them with you. Uh, how did you find that role in relation to the Guernsey one? Obviously working with a lot younger players, um, but potentially, you know, players who would be just felt solely focused on cricket.
0: Yeah, um, it, was, it was different. The, I actually had applied for the assistant coach's role there initially, but again, it was one of those where the interview was done just to tick a box because they had the person in place already, which actually turned out one of the worst decisions they ever made. Um, but I, when I got rung to say that role, you haven't got that role, but this role is available, uh, th- there was a caveat for me that I would do the role because their idea at the time was to make sure they had the best coaches at the bottom of their pathway and at the top of their pathway. So Andrew McDonald was head coach. Um, and they wanted me to get in and do the academy role. So I said I would, but I have to have exposure to the pros as well because coaching at that age group wasn't where I wanted to go. Um, but I'd certainly give it a hundred percent as long as I had exposure at the top level as well. So, I mean, it has to be said that while I was with Guernsey in the last year of my time with Guernsey, I was um, keeping a batting coach at Sussex as well. So I, I'd sort of gone into that environment, um, not knowing whether I would get a permanent role there. And then when the Leicester one came up, I had to apply for it because there was nothing sort of being promised from the Sussex side of things. So, yeah, it, it was interesting. The, the, the three boys um, had dabbled in the Sussex pathway, but i would got nothing concrete. Um, I, I rattled a few cages because, you know, they, they had, they'd been down there, but they hadn't really been given much attention. Um, and hadn't been given anything concrete either. Uh, but at the time, as I sometimes do, pull in a china shop, I, I get an idea in my head and we just go for it. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you get a slap on the wrist. But it's fair to say, um, Sussex so were best pleased with um, one one player in particular. I got a bit of a slap on the wrist for that because I didn't understand and I hadn't looked into the sort of rules and regs on, on approaching players like that. But for me, you know, it's, it's always, coaching is always about the player and making better people and better players. And my opinion was that he'd get a better opportunity um, and get into a shop window at, at Leicester. A, because I cared for them and B, because I suppose we were at a weaker county, but there'd be more eyes on them. So yeah. I think the boys had, had a good time there. Um, as it turned out, that particular player got a contract um, off the back of that and not playing cricket anymore, but it would be nice to see him come back and play some cricket. From an ability point of view, you know, there, there are it, – it's unlimited. You know, he could have been a very, very good professional cricketer. But, you know, we, we all make our choices. And hats off, he made a choice and, and he's run with it. But, yeah, it, w- it was an interesting time. You know, the, the academy system in England is not for me. Uh, it's and sometimes you've got to do something so you can cross a box off as well. The amount of um, paperwork that you've got to that you've got to get through, uh, pretty pointless paperwork in order to justify um, money that you get given. Um, I believe that the the justification should come out of the results you produce. And if you produce professional cricketers, that should be enough of a justification. You know, lest they produce some unbelievable cricketers out of their academy, but unfortunately they're surrounded by very affluent counties in Notts and Warwickshire. So those players go off there. You know, your broads, Wright's, Taylor's, you know, Harry Gurneys. There's a long, long, long list of very good cricketers that have come out of that academy. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, And like you
1: said, it is a massive shame that the one person you're talking about from Guernsey isn't still playing for Guernsey. Hopefully we can sort of lure him back in. uh, After... Leicester, you took up the opportunity to go with Sri Lanka as um, fielding coach. Um, How how did you find that? Obviously, that's international cricket, but a test-playing nation. Um, No longer associate cricket or academy cricket. Um, They've got a reasonable amount of history behind them. How was that role?
0: Yeah, it was amazing. Uh, You know, at at the time, Leicester was in complete turmoil. So it was was great to get out of there. Sri Lanka came and played a game against Leicester, one of their tour games. And uh, Graham Ford, who I'd played against his teams, played for him and then played against his teams again when he was at Kent. You know, Fordy and I've always had a great relationship. Um, and he said to me, look, uh, that they'd been dropping a heap of catches. So they were under pressure to employ a fielding coach. Their fielding coach at the time wasn't really a fielding coach. He was more just uh, a dog's body, a, a fantastic guy and an unbelievable work ethic. But um, wasn't really a fielding coach. Um, and nor was I, to be fair. But um, Fordy sort of wanted more an ally. He just wanted someone that he could bounce ideas off, someone that um, could help him out, and someone that was going he knew would, would work hard and be loyal to him. So when that opportunity came up, A, I couldn't get out of Leicester fast enough. But um, to go into international cricket and work with players of that calibre was, geez, it's just an opportunity that you couldn't pass up on. So, so yeah, took on, took on that opportunity. And again, unbelievable experience from a learning point of view, great people, um, a great place. Yes. The politics and the administration. I mean, you learn so much from, from being over there. You know, if, if ever I went back and, and certainly I would enjoy to going back, you would deal with it in, in such a different way because, you know, the coaches that are there and the players that are there are just the complete antithesis of the administration. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a different challenge. But to to work with those guys um, and certainly to watch them play now, you're still always in contact with them. They're always in contact with you. You make great friendships. Um, and as I said before, it's it's all about the players. And that theme will run through, you know, through the West Indies, through Middlesex now. It's all about the players, administrators or administrators, and, and I'm sure in their heart of hearts, they, they think they're doing the right things, although I might challenge that in the, in the West Indies and Sri Lanka. You, know, you learn so much, and you learn so much about cultures. I've got some fantastic advice. I, I, I asked to chat to Andy Flower um, before I went. He didn't know I was going, um, and Andy and I get on like a house on fire. I learned so much from it. But, he said, look, if he ever went and coached in, in Pakistan or if any of those places, he'd get very much up to speed with their culture before anything else. Um, and certainly that was the best advice I got. You know, to this day, I probably eat with my hands at every opportunity. You know, I learned a lot about Buddhism and what a great way of life is. And You know, once you immerse yourself in a culture, A, you build a lot of respect amongst the people there, but you learn and you open, you open your horizons up, you open your mind up to different things. Yeah, nice. And then follow,
1: following that, you, you went... Having
0: said that, sorry, I, I, I struggled with the culture in Guernsey because, um, you know, <laughs> being teetotal and um, you know, the culture in Guernsey, I did struggle with that culture, but uh, the outdoor lifestyle certainly I adhere to. Yeah,
1: no, there is that. With, with that, uh, you went on to West Indies following... Um, actually had a short period as interim head coach at Sri Lanka following Graham Ford's departure. Uh, then you went to to West Indies, uh, how was that in comparison with with Sri Lanka um, two obviously completely different nations
0: yeah um, different but but again um, two environments that had this massive ball and chain on them based on history you know they were both both teams and still are both teams in transition, but they'd just come off the back of some very very good teams you know when when you think of you know, it's not that long ago that Walsh, Curtly Ambrose, Lara, Jimmy Adams, you know, those kinds of players were playing for the West Indies. And to this day, their fans and, you know, people around the world expect them to perform. And un- unfortunately, with the West Indies, the West Indies just used to out genetic people in the past. Um, but science has caught up. And unfortunately, they've sort of been left behind a little bit. So from an ability point of view, a skill and ability point of view, you know, that's all there. It's, it's an amazing thing to think that it's, it's the fitness levels that are actually letting the West Indies down. There's only now fitness tests sort of coming into play and, you know, those kind of things coming into play. Um, and you'll see results will, will follow that. And the Sri Lankans are, were were following a team that involved you know Marilith and Vase Sangakara, Jay Wardner. you know, unbelievable cricketers, you know, in history. You know, Harath was obviously part of that era and then continued through. Uh, but you know, when you've got that ball and chain on you day in day out, mentally it's very tough for for the for that era of cricketers. So yeah, when you went across, it, it was pretty similar from that point of view. But but. What was also exactly the same with they were as people that just amazing, just amazing people, just so friendly, both both sets, just so friendly, worked so hard, because as a group they understood the the brush that they were being tied with, so they did work really hard, and they took, you know, in the media, both groups of players, they take an immeasurable amount of bad publicity through journalists that are paid who just put words on paper, but who understand nothing about the players and are, and are pretty ruthless with how they judge them. Uh, and
1: now, obviously, you're, you're, you're back in the UK with Middlesex as assistant coach. How, how's that? It's,
0: obviously, you've been there two years now, is it? This this would be my second, so last year was my first. Right. Yeah, the, the international travel sort of plays a role in you and um, it takes a toll. Um, I loved it, but unfortunately, like every scale... There's a, there's a tipping point once one side, <laughs> you get the benefits of one side, you're going to get um, the sort of negative bits on the other. So, so family suffered for that, but um, yeah, I just wanted to come back to the UK. Manny's five now, uh, was four last year, you know, he's in a great part of his life that I want to be a part of. So um, I didn't really want to be abroad um, and got a got a, I mean, an, an awesome opportunity, you know, Stewie, Stu Law, who got me to the West Indies, um, then moved on to Middlesex. Again, the politics, you know, for the same reason Graham Ford left Sri Lanka was the same reason that Stewie left the West Indies. Um, you know, in, in both countries, I was very fortunate that I got opportunities to be head coach of an international country, um, which I loved. Um, but then to follow Stu to, to Middlesex was a no-brainer. Um, I would have had the opportunity to go to a World Cup with the West Indies. But again, politics sort of intervened. So I moved across to Middlesex. Uh, it's, it's look, Stewie, myself, Graham Ford, you know, we're coaches that think along the same lines. Um, and I think the important thing with a coaching partnership is there's no um, hidden agendas and there's an element of trust. And Stewie knows that I don't want his job and I'll work for him 24-7. Um, he knows that and we work very well together. It's an Aussie and a South African. So, you know, we, we disagree on certain things, um, but we both know that I'm going to voice my opinion. If I have an opinion, I know that he'll take my opinion on board. I don't think we've ever had an argument. We, we have debates and we have um, conversations around certain points. But one thing that is, uh, that is absolute is that he's the boss. So whatever decision he makes, you know there's a maturity from my point of view because now, you know, I speak like I'm an experienced coach. I'm not, um, and you learn every day. You know, I started in 2013. let in 2020, seven years is hardly a career, but you know, I've, I've got enough experiences in the bag to understand my position and where I stand. And whatever decision Stu makes, we absolutely make sure that it's the correct decision regardless and then we'll review it after that and then Stewie's a mature guy who if he gets it wrong will put his hand up and go we got that wrong but it's not about being right and wrong it's about making players and your teams better Um, and you review on it honestly
1: yeah nice and off the back of the Middlesex stuff you went away with the under-19s England under-19s last year Um, building coaches again how was that role obviously that's a massive honour representing
0: England as a coach? Yeah, of course, yeah, it is. Um, and, you know, to work with the next rung of players was, was a great opportunity. Um, one thing you do realise is um, how little work gets put into fielding through the English profile. Um, and, you know, you, you had to go back to basics, um, which I hadn't anticipated at the time, but again, a great learning curve. Uh, you know, he worked with a fantastically experienced group of coaches. Again, so fortunate to be in a, in, in a team of coaches or a, a management team from the manager to the doctors, to the physios, to the S&Cs, the analysts, you know, the whole lot. It was just great people. So we had a great time together as well as doing some, some pretty good work. Uh, you know, when you think of, you know, Min Patel was the spin coach. John Lewis was the head coach um, and did the fast bowling, fast bowling, work. Ian Bell was the batting coach. So he was starting out on his coaching journey. Um, so it was nice to to get experiences from Belly as an international cricketer, as an elite international cricketer, um, and him to learn from us from a coaching point of view. So it, it was a, it was an awesome experience and one that I hope um, I'll get to do again. Uh, but a great way to break up the the um, the winter as well because. You know, spending three weeks in Antigua is hardly a chore. Um, And got to catch up with a lot of the people that uh, I worked with because Antigua is the base for West Indies cricket. Um, And the triangular there was um, with Sri Lanka. So I got to catch up with um, some mates there on the coaching staff there. So, yeah, it was was a great experience. And then going back to South Africa and catching up with mates there for for the World Cup, um, it was sort of a a twofold opportunity. On that, you sort of touched on it.
1: Any future ambitions, you know, short term, long term uh, that that you, that you have,
0: or is it sort of just taking every day as it comes? Uh, No, I mean, the the, the ambition is always um, to coach to the highest possible level. Um, Otherwise, as I did in South Africa, uh, you know, you tend to, to get stale. But having said that, you know, when, when you look at someone like Alex Ferguson, who, who I like to think is someone I, I look at and, and I try and learn from. You, you know, you you may not move out of an environment, but you may change the environment. You know, for the better of that environment. So, you know, whatever environment you're in, the longevity of that environment depends on the ambition, how it changes, how the players change, how you change the players. I mean, we we made a big call last year, and we we actually change a player for the sake of the environment, for the sake of other players. But it's um, you know i think it, it depends on what evolves you know you can't say that you want to move out of an environment or you want to go there you want to go there but certainly the ambition is always to coach to the highest possible level and you obviously have coached already to a, to a,
1: a very high level with with international roles um and county finally I, I sort of gave you a little a little tip off um that i was going to ask you to come up with the uh, the best 11. Last week, I, I asked the boys to give their best 11 they've played with or against. Yours are slightly different um, because if I ask you to do it for who you've played with and against, that will just be a, a huge player pool. Um, so I've actually sort of narrowed it down a little bit for you and asked you to do it for the best 11 that you've
0: you've coached. <laughs> it's, it's hard because you, you you I've been really, really fortunate in, in coaching some world-class cricketers, uh, a lot of world-class cricketers. So to try and get 11 people in a team is, is not that easy. So the way I've gone about it is I've gone, I've picked a test team and a white ball team. I wasn't going to do ODI and T20. So I just got white ball team. And then I've, I've just plonked a heap of um, reserves. So I almost picked a squad really rather than 11. Yeah. So from a, from a white ball point of view, um, my two opening batters would be Shea Hope and Chris Gale. Uh, three would be Kusel Mendes from Sri Lanka. Um, he's going to be one of the best players of all time. Yeah. Then at four, pretty average cricketer, AB Villiers. Um, behind
1: me is his is signed shirt, which he kindly got me. Um You yeah. haven't quite got. I had it on the wall, but we had to do a bit of a bit of uh, decorating, so it's come down for the time being. But yeah, yeah. That's, that's the reason I wear number seventeen. He's just amazing. He's I thought cool. that was the
0: reason he wore number seventeen. <laughs> that's <laughs> what I tell people, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and let it be said that a lot of, the, I mean, a lot of the, these guys are just great people as well. Um, I mean, AB couldn't do enough for people at Middlesex. Um, he was, a, I mean, um, unbelievable role model. Um, and certainly the, the players in, in county cricket who, younger cricket, who you think more is more, learned a lot from him. In that you don't have to be hitting balls twenty four seven. You know, you just have to be pretty smart about how you go about it. But just phenomenal. You know, having watched him. On TV, I played very little against him, but watching him play and perform and his attitude, think, is just phenomenal. Phenomenal person. Um, then at five, Kusal Janet Pereira um, from Sri Lanka again. Just phenomenal cricketer. You can just do anything. Literally can do anything. Uh, not the best work ethic, KJP, but uh, a great person. Um, and a phenomenal batter. I mean, he can keep. He's great in the field. He's got a good arm. He's just one of those. And let it be said, Kusov Mendes is the same. One of the best keepers you'll see. Great slip catcher. Can field anywhere. Amazing skill. And then you've got A.B. de Villiers as well. So three, four, and five can all keep. Field anywhere and hit the ball anywhere. Brilliant, those three. Then um, it's between Tissera Pereira and Kieran Pollard. Um, at seven, um, both similar cricketers as well, gun absolutely gun fielders, um, bowl the ball backwards and hit the ball miles. So yeah, similar cricketers, you could you could pick either or of those two. Um, both uh, have their kryptonites: as the short ball. So um, we need them at the back end when there's probably not many bounces flying around. Then, then you're going to hear a name which which people probably wouldn't have thought that I'd um, that I'd pick. But as a one-day cricketer, this guy is elite. Um, and I would only have known that having coached him. Um, but it's Fabian Allen from the West Indies. He will be up there with John T. Rhodes as one of the best fielders you'll ever see. Um, if anyone wants to go and um, YouTube it and see some of the catches this bloke's taken and some of the run-outs he's made, it's just unbelievable. The, he ran out Joe Root from the boundary in the World Cup last year, direct hit, just Unbelievable piece of fielding. He took a catch in the CPL on a boundary running at full pace. And let me tell you, this guy ran the 100 up there with some of the fastest you've ever seen. He's from Jamaica. He's He's got a body of a Greek god. This guy is phenomenal. He hits the ball miles. And as a left-arm spinner, has such a good handle on when people are going, are going at him. But, yeah, amazing cricketer and a seriously good guy. I've, I've just... Uh, just- Chucked
1: onto YouTube on the iPad, uh, Fabian Allen and the first catch is pretty special. He's
0: taking a one-handed snare at deep backward point. Yeah, yeah, on the boundary, it's a CBL yeah. game. is yeah. yeah. a CBL. Yeah. And if you if you look at how quickly he gets off the ground again, he's yeah. literally just a ball of muscle. Yeah, that was unbelievable. But yeah, he's he's a phenomenal cricketer. Uh and then the in the bowling department here, we're going with Chris Jordan, Majib. And Malinga, I think we'll have more than enough bowling in that 11 uh, because a certain Chris Gale can probably bowl a few as well if needed. On the reserve bench uh, or in the squad, if you like, I've picked Dan and Jay De Silva for his batting, bowling and fielding. Cottrell, the salute, just to have a bit of left arm options. Another great man. Uh, Luke Wright as uh, reserve at the top of the order. Uh, right, he'll probably hate me for this because he'll want to be playing, but um, great team man, a great squad man, and obviously a phenomenal cricketer. Uh, then Nicholas Poran, another... He's going to be a special, special cricketer. Um, as he as he gets older, had a bit of a an exodus from international cricket, but um, has come back in, did a little stint for Yorkshire, was going to do another little stint for Yorkshire in the T20 this year. But for a little guy... Hits the ball absolute miles. There's another keeper who can field um, and can hit the ball literally 360 in the league of A B de Villiers. Um, it's a massive shout. But you know, in India, two years ago against that attack, you know, I saw him reverse sweeping, seam bowlers at the death over backward point for six. It, it, literally phenomenal. So yeah, he's in the squad. And then for a little bit of pace, Stephen Finn. Uh, and a guy who, unfortunately, is probably getting past the international role. But if T20 franchises around the world want to take a punt on a bloke um, who's a serious cricketer um, and keep a batter, uh, John Simpson from, from Middlesex. So, th- so that would be my squad. If you actually look at it, and I've only just noticed it, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six keeper batters in that group <laughs> <laughs> no preferences at all <laughs> <laughs> which, yeah. which just shows you in this day and age um, that your keepers have to be able to bat and some of your best batters are actually keepers you know you, you think Johnny Bairstow Josh Butler if if they're not keeping they're still some of your best fielders out yeah. in the field
1: story as well Um, uh, pasty Andy Cornford's also spoken about how Matt Pryor was just electric in the outfield
0: yeah
1: and yeah and he was a keeper. Uh, but yeah. they said, yeah, he, was, he was probably the best ground fielder at Sussex at the time, but, but kept wicket.
0: Yeah. So you, you do get that. So, so my question out there um, is, why do fast bowlers not have to back then? <laughs> so I'm just going to put that out there. Just leave it on the table and people can respond how they like. Um, then, then my test team uh, obviously looks a little bit different. Uh, Dimit, Karina Ratna as opening batter with Craig Brathwaite you know test match cricket is tough you know it's it it is exactly as the word suggests it's a proper test and you're talking about two blokes there who are hard as nails you know that they, they may not have techniques that people will pay the house down to go and watch but they get the job done um, and certainly if you're a middle order batter you'd want them batting for you uh, at three Chris Almenders again sorry did I did I mention um Shimmer and Hittmeyer in my in my white ball team? Hetmyer wasn't in. I don't think. Yeah. It. So sorry. He comes after Chris Janeth Pereira. So he he fits in between Pollard and Pereira. But um, I mean, you you can't say enough about this bloke. He's you know if you he, Hetty and I get on like a house on fire. So he, you know if you ever had to listen to this podcast, he probably wouldn't mind me saying it. But um, as soon as he refrains from. Kentucky Fried Chicken, Uh, you know, you'll have a long career. But um, unfortunately, uh, Hetty heads for KFC a little bit too often. But skills as a batter and as a fielder, he's like best in the world. You know, as a young kid, he has no fear. He's one of the best players of spin you'll ever see because he's from Guyana. So they brought up on spin. But again... He's the antithesis of a player from Guyana in that he plays a short ball very, very well. Um, And I've seen him take down that that Indian attack, which is elite, you know, taking them down. I've seen him score 200s against that team in 50 balls and 50-odd balls. Um, He's a young cricketer who's still trying to work out his frequency on batting. He plays ODI cricket at a T20 pace, and he plays T20 at a pace that no one's ever seen. He's just trying to find his pace, but um, yeah, he's just going to be a, a star of the game. He is already, but he's going to be phenomenal. So in my test team, um, it's Hetty at four, uh, Dan and Jay De Silva at five, Shane Dowridge, uh is my keeper at six, Jason Holders at seven, Rangana Herath, Kimar Roach, Suranga Lakmal and uh, Shannon Gabriel. Uh, the rest of that 11. And then on my reserves bench, my reserves bench looks a little bit different in that I haven't picked a test reserves bench or squad. I've picked players that I think can, they have done obviously, um, play test match cricket, but could still. Um, so John Simpson again and Ben Brown. I think both of them um, should have certainly done a lot more A-team cricket, England uh, Lions cricket. Uh, and. Could definitely play test match cricket. Sam Robson, who's obviously dabbled um, in some test match cricket, but certainly where he is at the moment, if England are looking for an opening batter, I know they've they've found some young bucks there that uh, that look pretty good. But um, certainly Robbo wouldn't let anyone down at that level. Yeah, so Stephen
1: Phil. Fitt- a little bit harshly treated in a way. Um we cut A lot of other openers have had a lot longer chances than than Robson. He scored 100 in one of his his tests.
0: Yeah, he did. He did. And, and, you know, he was one of those where it was an era where they were just getting guys in. um, And probably Robbo will tell you he wasn't quite ready at the time. Yeah. He certainly got, you know, a more well-rounded game now um, to take on Test Match cricket. But, yeah, very good slip catcher. Great bloke, the most level man you'll ever meet. Uh, his brother at, at Middleton, uh, Gus, and he's an absolute champion as well. He's a he? champion. Yeah. Completely different characters. Both space cadets. Yeah. <laughs> but completely different characters. Um, I mean, if, if you had to ask Grubber, I'm sure he wouldn't be able to tell you what planet he actually lives on. But, uh, yeah, legend of a bloke. He is that bloke that when you give instructions, will ask a question at the end based on the instructions, 100%. Because... He's like most super intelligent blokes, and in that their, their minds just wander. I think for want of a better word. Um, and then Stephen Finn, Toby Roland Jones, say, Brownie. So yeah, that, that would be my squad. Yeah, Roland Jones is another one actually who had he
1: did really well in the tests he played in, uh, and then I think he got injured and then just he got injured. Yeah, he got injured. He had some stresses, yeah. and also Finn actually was he was sort of thrown in at the deep end probably at a very young age and just. Basically told them all as quick as he could. With, um, I mean, if you watch that, the uh, the edge when his interview on there was was pretty interesting. How you know he he took a six for I think, and then he got dropped for the next game.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and you ask you ask yourself as a coach what that does for someone mentally. You oh, know? Yeah. Forget the, forget the reason you're giving them. Yeah, you know, mentally, you know, a, a folks for example. Yeah, you know, goes test match hundred that and. Now I must be wondering, am, am I just a subcontinent cricketer? Because I get picked to go to the subcontinent. But yeah, you know, and, and he's a bloke who plays the short ball very, very well coming from yeah. the oval. It's a no-brainer. That bloke's the best keeper in the country. Um, I say that in a pool of keepers. There, there's a lot of like pool, but he's probably ahead of the pack based on the fact that he's younger, but he also plays on a surface which is closer aligned to a test match surface. Yeah. than any other surface in the UK, which is why you're starting to see um, some cricketers come through that have been brought up at the Oval.
1: It's been uh, really interesting, actually. Thanks very much for taking the time out. Uh,
0: and Thanks I'm for gonna... having me.
1: No, no, it's been, been a pleasure. Obviously, uh, you're always welcome back on the pod as, as you are
0: in Guernsey at any stage. Thank you. Thank you. And let's, uh, let's wait for lockdown to finish and I'll be straight over on that rock. No, nice. Thanks very much, Gabe. Perfect. Thanks, Fabi.
1: Thank you for listening to the Guernsey Cricket Podcast. Remember to hit the subscribe button and stay safe.